Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On Friday, uh, federal judge Clark Waddups ruled that uh, the uh, bigamy laws in Utah uh, are more narrow than they previously were considered. He effectively decriminalized polygamy. Of course, big news nationwide and in Utah. Today we're going to talk about polygamy. We're going to ask you if you agree with Judge Waddup's ruling, what should happen next, and uh, what's your view of polygamy? Is this more an issue of uh, freedom of religion, or is there something inherent in the practice of polygamy, at least in some groups, which uh, effectively uh, coerces and abuses women and children? We're going to be talking later in the program with Rebecca Musser, who was born into the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At age 19, she was forced into a polygamous marriage to the church's prophet, Rulin Jeffs, a man more than four times her age. After her husband died and Warren Jeffs, the new prophet, tried to force her to remarry, she escaped. She later testified against Jeffs and other FLDS leaders in Texas. The book is The Witness War Red. It's later in the program. Right now, Jonathan Turley is an attorney who represented the Cody Brown family, which brought the suit, which resulted in this landmark ruling on Friday. Jonathan Turley, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, I'm sure, I've read, <laughs> you must be pleased with the ruling. Well, it, it certainly is a historic ruling, and in my view, it's a profile of courage for Judge Waddups. You know, in the ruling, he spoke very frankly of how it took him months of contemplating the implications of the opinion, and he even talked about how easy it would have been, as, have, as it has been in earlier cases, to simply uphold the law. But he said it wouldn't be the moral or the legal thing to do, I think that takes a great deal of courage. What exactly was the Brown family seeking? What, uh, what, what caused them to bring the suit? Well, the Brown family was put under criminal investigation after their reality show, Sister Wives, aired. Uh, prosecutors went public and said that the family was committing felonies every night on television and that uh, they were in violation of the state law. That investigation went on for two years at the state look desperately to try to find any crime of any kind or any form of abuse, and they admitted later that they did not. But the investigation continued, and that prompted me to go to the federal court to uh, ask the court to strike down the criminal law. Uh, we brought nine different counts, but the federal court only needed two. Uh, Judge Waddups found that the law was in violation of the due process clause of the Constitution and privacy, and then he also found that it was a violation of the freedom of religion. Hmm. Uh, so the, this, the, the central part of the ruling has to do with uh, um, bigamy, right? The, the Utah had, uh, had a broader definition of bigamy. Uh, Judge Waddups effectively narrowed that down to a person having multiple marriage licenses, official marriages. That's right. The law uh, criminalized cohabitation which goes beyond uh, polygamy. In fact, the Brown decision will benefit a, gr a rather wide array of relationships in Utah uh, beyond polygamy. Uh, what the court did, and, and this is what we had asked for, is for the court to strike down the cohabitation law and to leave Utah in the same position as most other states. That is to only prosecute people that have more than one marriage license. Polygamists generally don't have multiple marriage licenses. They have one marriage license, and then the remainder of their marriages are called spiritual marriages. Uh, they don't. They have not sought. Certainly, the Browns have not sought multiple licenses. So, where does this leave us? Is essentially does this decriminalize polygamy? Can can people in polygamous families uh, now sort of come out of the shadows? Uh, no fair prosecution. Uh, it most certainly does decriminalize polygamy. There's no question about that. Polygamy is legal in Utah after this decision. Polygamy is not uh, the same as bigamy. It does not require multiple marriage licenses. In fact, that's what this law was designed to do, because they uh, couldn't prosecute polygamists under bigamy statutes, because polygamists generally don't have multiple licenses. Most people prosecuted for bigamy hold themselves out as monogamous. They're hiding earlier marriages. So there's no question that polygamous families can now, for the first time in the history of the state, walk openly uh, in their communities and be as they are in private. For many decades, those families have had to live two lives, one private 
and one public, and the latter was a lie. You know, they had to hide the fact that they had a different type of family from their neighbors. Uh, now they can walk publicly and be who they are. I think, frankly, this decision will make it not just uh, easier for them, but it would also make it easier for the state. I've talked to many state officials who have privately said that they've had difficulty because they want to incorporate plural families into state programs, but the state law defines them as felons. Uh, that pr conflict is now removed. And so you're going to have these families integrate in society, and I think that's a benefit for everyone. And I suppose uh, you would say uh, the, you know, the state has been going after uh, some of these communities when they see abuses. I guess that would still be the case. Absolutely. You know, there are abuses in monogamous families and abuses in polygamous families. Hmm. You know, the Brown family has been very vocal in criticizing people like Warren Jeffs. Uh, this is a very modern family. They don't live in a compound. They the women in the family believe in divorce. They're very independent. People can see that from their show. Uh, it's very important, as we argued in court, not to criminalize all families because there's abuses in some. If that was the case, we could criminalize monogamy because there's spousal abuse and child abuse in monogamous families. That's not how it's done. And I think what Judge Wadhams has said and, and what this case means is that you cannot have freedom of religion as long as it's your religion. And you can't have privacy as long as it's your privacy. You either have to have due process and privacy for everyone or for no one. Does this harm the state's ability to define marriage? No, it doesn't. And this is one of the uh, rather weirder reactions to the case that has come from some uh, figures like uh, Senator Santorum, this has nothing to do with the recognition of marriage. Uh, we stated from the outset, we repeatedly stated in court, the Browns are not asking for the state to recognize their plural relationships. Uh, what they ask for is to be able to live their lives according to their faith, not to have their families criminalized. Very few people, and certainly Senator Santorum would be one of them, can imagine what it's like to have a state declare your family to be a criminal enterprise, to live with this Damocles sword over your head, that any day you could be prosecuted and your children taken away because your family's not like those of your neighbors. Hmm. How does this ruling square with, uh, uh, I have a vague understanding of this, I'm sure you would understand this better, uh, isn't banned polygamy baked into our Constitution? I know we talked about that with the court. You know, the court asked uh, asked for a briefing on whether the state could actually lose its statehood since uh, the prohibition of polygamy was a condition of the so-called Enabling Act. Uh, and as we say in those filings, Utah is an equal state with the other 49 states. It's not a conditional state. Uh, there is a difference between recognition of polygamy and the criminalization of polygamy. But putting that aside, uh, Utah has a right to do what it wishes in the definition of marriage. Once it became a state, it was a full state, not just some half state. Uh, so I don't believe that that is going to be uh, an issue. And part of being a state in this union means that you have to live by this covenant that we have called the Constitution. And that means, as Judge Wadhams said so clearly, you can't deny people the freedom of religion or due process. That's the only condition in this case of being a state that cannot be violated. What about uh, the the recent amendment? Was it Amendment Three? You know, the, about definition of marriage. How, do, how does this ruling square with that? Well, once again, in terms of defining marriage, it doesn't apply. The no one is asking for the state to recognize plural marriages. Uh, what we've done in this case is say you can't prosecute the private relationships or consensual relationships of adults. And that makes this case more like Lawrence v. Texas. That is what happened for polygamists in this case is what happened for homosexuals 10 years ago. But that has nothing to do with the question of recognition of marriage. Utah can still define marriage as it, as it wishes. 
And also, more importantly, um, this takes away the criminalization of this wide range of cohabitation. This applied to adulterous relationships, other types of relationships beyond merely polygamous relationships. I believe you were quoted as saying this is a this is a victory for privacy. It is. This is more to do with privacy than polygamy. That what this case represents more than anything is the victory of what Louis Brandeis talked about when he said that Americans have a core right, and that is the right to be left alone. What people like Senator Santorum and others have been saying publicly is that they want to limit the freedom of religion, limit uh, privacy, so that the government can tell you how to live your life, uh, to impose a moral code uh, that your neighbors want you to live by. I consider that to be distinctly un-American, that is, we believe in this country that the government doesn't dictate how we live, that we have a right to be left alone. Some uh, ex-polygamists, especially those who've come out of the FLDS community, uh, are worried about this. Kristen Decker, quoted in Salt Lake Tribune, who uh, lived in the uh, FLDS community for many years and has left now, uh, this is her quote. She says, I think it's going to open the door for more polygamy and more welfare. Uh, talking about this ruling. Well, uh, frankly, I'm not too sure what that means. I mean, the, the plural families can get welfare already. I don't see any change that it would occur in that sense. But more importantly, that's hardly a reason to deny people their constitutional rights, that you are afraid you might have to give them welfare like other families. In terms of whether there will be more polygamy, I haven't the slightest idea. Uh, the, the important thing, in my view, is that we all remain united against abuses in any family, whether it's monogamous or polygamous. I find it odd that this case would not be welcomed by those who want to fight those abuses. The reason those abuses occur is because most polygamous families have to live in secret. You know, when people say, why do they live in compounds? One of the reasons may be because you arrest them if they're out publicly as a plural family. Now that these families can be openly what they are, it'll be easier to interact with them. It'll be easier to deal with abuses, just as it is with monogamous marriages. The uh, state, of course, will decide whether or not to appeal this decision. Governor Herbert, by the way, uh, preliminary comments, he says he, he prefers this kind of thing to be decided at the legislature. We'll have to see if the state uh, appeals. What would be the next step? Could, the, could this end up in the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, the Attorney General's office in the past has said that it will appeal any uh, negative decision. So they would uh, have to reverse those earlier statements. I think that they should. Uh, I think they should sit down and read this opinion and reconsider. But we've always anticipated that the state would appeal because they've said they would. Uh, we are prepared uh, to defend this decision in Denver, where the United States Court of Appeals meets. Uh, it will be an honor to defend Judge Wadup's opinion. It is a magnificent opinion. Uh, it speaks with passion and clarity about what really is shared by all Americans, this belief that we can organize our, our families according to our faith and our own values and not to have those dictated by the majority. This could end up being a, a landmark case uh, nationwide, couldn't it? Uh beyond Utah. Yes, but it's already a landmark case. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not appealed, it's likely to be cited around the country. Uh, it's the first case of its kind, the first ruling of its kind. Uh, and it's a great honor to be part of it. But what I would say to people who find plural families to be uh, offensive or obnoxious is to step back for a second and just think about the implications of criminalizing such families simply because you don't like them. You don't like the choices that these people make. The court found that there were no abuses here in this family. This is just a different family that makes different choices from your own. And I think part of maturing as a democracy, a country dedicated to the rule of law, is to say that we let people make those decisions. We don't agree with them. What we agree on, our covenant of faith as a nation, is that everyone makes those decisions for themselves. We'll uh, leave it there. By the way, uh, the, the Brown family, what, what you, I'm, I'm guessing you've been talking with them. What, what's next for them? 
Well, they were overwhelmed by the decision. It was a very emotional conversation with the entire family. Uh, this has been a long fight for them, a long struggle. Uh, for the moment, they're simply uh, enjoying this moment uh, that they hoped and prayed for. I think that they'll look in the future. They are free to return to Utah. Uh, their children are not threatened, not threatened by this law. And I, I am very, I was very happy to deliver that news to them. We've been talking with Jonathan Turley. He's the attorney who represented the Cody Brown family in federal court. Judge Clark Waddups uh, has effectively decriminalized uh, polygamy. We're talking about that on the program today. Jonathan Turley, uh, thanks so much. Appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll talk with a woman who was raised a member of the FLDS community. Rebecca Musser was born into the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and at age 19 was forced to marry into a polygamous marriage uh, to the church's prophet, Rulon Jeffs, a man more than four times her age. After her husband died and Warren Jeffs, the new prophet, tried to force her to remarry, she escaped and she later testified against FLDS leaders in Texas. Her book is The Witness War Red. We'll get her reaction to Judge Waddup's ruling and hear her story uh, following the break. By the way, you are welcome to uh, comment. Anything you'd like to say on this? Do you agree with Judge Waddup's ruling? What should happen next? Uh, what's your view of polygamy in general? Uh, and the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We have a comment already from Charles Ashers. Thank you for that. We'll get to that following the break. And you can join us by email at upraccess at gmail.com. More following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week we're celebrating the season in high style, from picks for the perfect bubbles to cooking your Christmas goose and decadent chocolate desserts. We're going to make sure your table is ready for the merriment. Join me. That's the Splendid Table from APM. Coming up this morning at 10 o'clock. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering an apple fontina panini, three cheese grilled panini, and daily soups. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You've uh, heard no doubt about uh, Judge Clark Waddup's ruling uh, on Friday. He handed it down in the case of the Cody Brown family. They had brought suit in federal court. His ruling effectively decriminalizes polygamy in Utah. And uh, we've been talking with Jonathan Turley, the attorney representing the Brown family. Now we turn to uh, Rebecca Musser, who was born into the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At age 19, she was forced into a polygamous marriage to the church's prophet, a man more than four times her age. After her husband died and Warren Jeffs, the new prophet, tried to force her to remarry, she escaped. And she later testified against Jeffs and other FLDS leaders in Texas. She's the founder of Claim Red, a nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing dignity, hope, and healing to victims of human trafficking. And her new book is The Witness War Red, the 19th wife who brought polygamous cult leaders to justice. Rebecca Musser, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to have you with us. Uh, you, of course, have uh, personal experience living in polygamous community. What, what was your reaction to uh, Judge Waddup's ruling on Friday? Honestly, I think that after growing up in the FLDS, being a polygamous child, being well-schooled in the doctrine that they use to support polygamy in both groups, even in this case about the AUB, which is the group that the Cody Brown family is part of, I am disappointed because this really is being cloaked in a First Amendment issue, in a right to religious freedom, which I think any one of us in the United States feels like that we have the right to practice how we choose to believe. However, I feel like, and I think that everybody could truly take a look at the fact that when that faith, when acting on our faith violates the human rights of another person, that First Amendment protection stops. We do not have the right to violate anyone in the name of God, in the name of lust, in the name of money, however that may be. And that's where I'm disappointed in, in the oversimplification that this ruling has 
I hope that it opens up the conversation to have a very much more clear and in-depth reality, you know, look at the reality of what polygamy, the real-life polygamy is, and also what polygamy, the polygamy we see on TV is. So I hope the conversation gets a lot more accurate and a lot more clear. There are groups who, uh, you know, they're very clear uh, that they do not do underage marriages, and that they they make a delineation and a, a difference between them and the FLDS Church. I've talked to people in Centennial Park, for example. They're very clear about that, um, and I'm, I'm sure you know, the Cody Brown family, the UAB, you know, they would say that as well. Uh, but you're are, are you saying that uh, any practice of polygamy, even those who don't practice underage marriages, uh, has some problems, inherent problems? I am, and I'll tell you why. This is the part that nobody wants to ask, nobody wants to look at. They stop with asking the question of saying, do you choose this? What they are not looking at is the level of grooming that goes into these young people from birth for them to be able to be in a society where this is normal. And not only is it normal, but it's what they have to do in order to gain their eternal salvation. I am grateful that the groups in Centennial Park and the AUB are softer on this underage marriage issue. However, if you are in a situation where God will give you more salvation, where you will be a little more blessed and loved by God if you live this way, that is some serious coercion. And people are not looking at that. I think that if we look at what our basic human rights are, you see, I thought I was choosing. I chose, at least they ask you of your own free will and choice. And I just think that it's tremendously important for everyone to look much deeper at the grooming that goes on for these young people and inherent in polygamy is inequality i think i'm not calling any of these people bad i'm just saying we need to look at the behavior and the grooming that happens and that's where the crime is at you uh you founded uh, claim red which uh, helps victims of human trafficking D- do you uh, you put polygamous groups in in that arena in that area? I put any kind of human violation, any kind of forced act of sex, any kind of forced act of labor in the context of human trafficking. It's important for people to understand what choice really constitutes. If the choice is, hey, you can choose this, you can choose A or you can choose B. If you choose A, I will kill you or you'll be eternally damned. Or you can choose B and you can live but hey, you know, feel free to choose. That's the stakes that these people are under that nobody's talking about. Let me bring in a comment on Facebook from Charles Ashurst. By the way, you're welcome to uh, comment. We'd love to have your comment or question on this landmark ruling from uh, Judge Clark Waddups, effectively decriminalizing polygamy in Utah. Early in the program, we talked with Jonathan Turley, representing the Brown family. Uh, he, of course, and the Brown family are very much in favor of this ruling. So it's a First Amendment issue. Rebecca Musser, my guest right now, is saying that we need to look more closely at this and that there are some inherent uh, problems in uh, any polygamous group. Uh, her book is uh, The Witness War Red. We'll get into talking about her uh, story. She grew up in an FLDS uh, family, FLDS community, and uh, was forced to marry the church's prophet. He was, I think, 85 at the time. Uh, later on, after he died, Warren Jeffs, the new prophet, was going to force her to remarry. That's when she escaped. She then uh, testified against Warren Jeffs and F- other FLDS leaders in uh, Texas. And a very interesting history in the witness war read. So you can comment on this on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Charles Hashurst says, one concern among many regarding a polygamous society, what about the surplus men? I wonder what your response to that is, Rebecca Musser. And we heard about the Lost Boys from the FLDS and so forth. Well, it's a very real issue. We have roughly equal numbers of men and women in this world, and in a polygamous society, they have to supply a, a much greater supply of girls to accommodate the men having more wives. Because in their society, a man with more wives, that's evidence of God's approval of him. So they have to be able to supply this. But the young boys, what happens to them? I know in the FLDS, 
the boys are kicked out if there's any sign, any sign of resistance or any kind of disobedience where they would show lack of loyalty to the prophet. So it's a very real issue, and they simply will, you know, put it on a scapegoat of, well, they didn't want to be here, but there's a lot of pressure put on those young boys. Let's uh, get into telling your story. This is a fascinating story. Um, so your father was not a polygamist uh, early on. He had, had a wife, five children. He was converted to the FLDS, right? Yes, my father's case is different than most people who are in the FLDS. He was raised in mainstream society. He went to college. He had a college education. He also spent time in the military. He did marry his high school sweetheart and then went on to join. And he had the perspective of the outside world, but still is loyal to the beliefs and the structure within the FLDS mindset. I don't understand it all, but... That is what he chose to do. And he lived, and you lived, in Salt Lake area? Yes. I believe. Uh, so he, he converted to the FLDS. Uh, he took a second wife, uh, and you are a child of the second marriage. I am. I'm my mother's fifth child. He went on to have 14 children. And your family lived in the basement, I believe. My family did live in my father's basement. He was very secretive about his second wife and her children, because he had a very public business life in Salt Lake City. It was, you know, something where we were, the responsibility was put on us as my mother's, the second wife's children, to keep our father safe, to not talk about him, because there, and and I want to comment on this, because the attorney said that people, the polygamists now, want to walk out in the open and not be afraid. The state of Utah has not been prosecuting for years. Nobody's really accused Utah of taking a really hard stand on this issue. The fear that these people have is what is handed to them from their leadership. Utah's not hunting people down, dragging them out of their homes to say, you're a polygamist, you're a criminal. That's, this law doesn't really change anything. And I just want to be very clear that this fear is coming down from their leadership, and it's one of the tactics to keep cult groups under control. So you, you call the FLDS a cult? Based on studies, based on the experts, when they define the behavior of a cult, yes, hmm. the FLDS is definitely a cult. You would, would you or would you not call other polygamous groups cults? Well, I will say this. I've not been in the AUB in my lifetime. However, up until the 1950s, the AUB, the Centennial Park Group, and the FLDS were all the same group. And they they did not split because of the atrocities going on. They split because of a power struggle between the brethren. So their behavior, their doctrine is very much the same. The FLDS may be more extreme. However, the traits of cult behavior, I seriously would like to for people to consider, are they present in the behavior of these other groups? Uh, so as you're growing up, you... Um it's very clear that you're a polygamous family. Even you know, you go on outings and you're you're dressed differently, and yes. you get you get some abuse. I think people call you plagues and, and so forth. Yes, you are looked at differently, and not only did we dress different, but we were told by our leadership that we were different, that we were more blessed of God because we were living this high, higher law of plural marriage. There's a tremendous amount of effort by the leadership that goes into keeping these people, the people under their control, in their minds, keeping them different, telling them they're much more blessed than the rest of the world, they're more righteous than the rest of the world, to keep that fear and that gap between them and the outside world as wide as they can. We're talking with Rebecca Musser on the program. Uh, she grew up in the FLDS uh, community. I uh, was forced to marry uh, Roland Jeffs, who was the prophet of the uh, of the church, uh, when she was 19, uh, and she was the 19th wife. When he died, uh, his son Warren Jeffs took over. He was going to force Rebecca Musser to remarry. That's when she decided to escape. She's uh, now uh, been involved in prosecution of Warren Jeffs and other, other FLDS uh, leaders uh, being a witness. Uh, she showed up one day uh, at one of those trials wearing a red dress. That uh, gave rise to the... Uh, 
the title of her book, The Witness Wore Red. We'll get into talking a bit about the significance of that. You can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or by email to upraxis at gmail.com. What was your, what was the first wife of your father? What was her reaction to the, to the second marriage? I, you know, I wasn't born yet, but I can definitely say that my mother went through a tremendous amount of abuse at her hand. My father's first wife was tremendously jealous, and there was a tremendous amount of physical, mental abuse that went on in my father's home. Including, including you your, and, and some sisters? Yes, there was sexual abuse in my father's home as well. And that's where I think it's important, especially in light of the topic of the day. People are trying to say that we're targeting polygamists because of these abuses, when these abuses are very rampant in society everywhere. That is why I think it's important to talk about the behavior. However, in a polygamous society, because of the dynamic between the father, the wives, and a level of detachment. See, my father was 60 years old, and he went on to marry his 20-something-year-old niece and went on to have two children. He was just fine with that mentally. Uh, and I think that there's serious consequences in the relationships from parents to children and children siblings to each other in these kinds of societies because there's a sense of detachment in order to be able to take another man's young daughter and bring her to your family, even though you know you watched her be born and grow up, and then all of a sudden she's an option for a wife. And that's what happened in my father's family. There was not a close relationship between him and us as children. Or, you know, and there was a tremendous amount of abuse between the wives. So it was just, I think, per capita, that is where people need to look at the behavior inside of the polygamous families, as well as the monogamous families. What was the, what was the attitude of your father, and perhaps church leaders, to abuse within your family? Would, just not talk about it? What What was the reaction? Inside of the home, then there wasn't a lot of talking about it. However, there was an instance in my father's family where a younger sister was molested by a, a young man in the community. And when my father was found out, he was upset, but he was told by Warren just and Ruin Jeff not to prosecute, not to press charges, because it would bring a public scorn on the church as a whole. So there's a lot of pressure put on the individual people to protect the church, and it's sort of like, just ignore it, and we'll, we'll change, and, and it will just go away. But this behavior is rampant in polygamous societies. Hmm. Well, and what was, uh, how did you handle it? A young girl being abused, that doesn't, you know, and the reaction of your family doesn't square you're, you're certainly not getting justice. What do you, do you suppress it? What do you do? Well, for me as a child, I was told after my father's first wife beat me till I was bloody, she said, if you ever tell anyone, I will kill your mother. So I was threatened, and I did not tell anyone until I was an adult. And I struggled a lot because I felt like I had done something wrong to make this happen. And I think that this speaks to the fact of you know, sexual abuse everywhere. In particular, there's so much shame that happens. And this is not just an FLDS problem. This is not just a polygamous problem. It is time for anyone who has this and they're carrying this shame to break the silence and come out, get the help, get some good therapy to be able to move on because it's enough to strangle a person's soul where they just go on to exist instead of to truly live in their life. Of course, the state, uh, while saying, and for several years they've said this, we're not going to prosecute you for being polygamous per se, but we will go after abuses in the community. Uh, some are saying that uh, this ruling, effectively decriminalizing polygamy, will open things up a little more and we'll have more success getting at the abuses. Well, it's a nice thought. However, if we take that a step deeper and we look at what the leadership is doing among their groups, they infuse their group, their followers, with fear of the outside world. And I just don't believe that this is going to make it to where just because someone's a polygamist that they're going to come out and say this abuse is happening. And, you know, again, the law 
all that has changed in the law to decriminalize polygamy is to make it to where it's harder to investigate the crime is not because of polygamy. Polygamy, it's all of the crimes that happen under polygamy, and it really stems from the leadership sending the fear down towards their people. So I, I hope so, and and in a perfect world that that makes sense, but I just don't think that people are taking into account the structure inside of these groups and the tactics that are used to keep them under control. We're talking with Rebecca Musser on the program. Her book is The Witness War Red, The 19th Wife Who Brought Polygamous Cult Leaders to Justice. There are two pictures on the uh, cover. We'll, we'll talk about uh, the journey from one picture to the next when we come back following a break. One is Rebecca Musser among uh, many wives, Rulin Jeffs. And the next picture is her in a, uh, a red dress arriving uh, with a couple of... Uh, Security officials, I expect, to, uh, to testify the trial of, uh, against FLDS leaders in uh, Texas. We'll talk more with uh, Rebecca Musser following the break. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. In Cache Valley, air pollution comes from two main sources, mobile sources and area sources. Mobile sources are cars, trucks, and other automobiles. They release pollutants as they operate and we can minimize the pollutants by driving less and keeping our cars well-maintained. Area sources include wood-burning stoves, industries that use solvents, and char-broiling restaurants. We can minimize pollutants from these sources by maintaining industry and state standards for businesses and by not using wood-burning stoves during no-burn days. By minimizing our pollutants, we can help improve our air and keep Utah a great place to live. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. Did you know that graduates of instructional technology and learning sciences can land high-paying jobs in several different sectors, including K-12 and higher education, corporate America, government, and government subcontractors? Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about polygamy on the program today. It's much in the news. Uh, in the wake of uh, Friday's ruling from uh, federal judge Clark Wadups, which effectively decriminalized polygamy in Utah. Early in the program, we talked with Jonathan Turley, the attorney representing the Cody Brown family, which brought that lawsuit. We're talking now with Rebecca Musser, who was uh, born a member of the FLDS community, raised in that uh, community, uh, albeit in Salt Lake, but raised in that church, and was forced into a polygamous marriage with the church's prophet, Rulon Jeffs, a man more than four times her age. After her husband died and Warren Jeffs, the new prophet, tried to force her to remarry, she escaped. She later ended up testifying against Warren Jeffs and other FLDS teacher, uh, leaders in Texas. She's the founder of Claim Red, a nonprofit organization dedicated to uh, bringing dignity, hope, and healing to victims of human trafficking. And her book is The Witness War Red, The 19th Wife Who Brought Polygamous Cult Leaders to Justice. You're welcome to join this program at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page and by email to upraxis at gmail.com. So, Rebecca Musser, what was your, what was your reaction when you learned that you were to be uh, wed to uh, an 85-year-old man? He's, he's the prophet of the church. It was overwhelming to me because I was told since birth what this, that this would be expected of me. And not only was it expected, but it was something that I had to do in order to gain my eternal salvation. I wanted very much to be a good priesthood girl, and I wanted to go to heaven, I think, like a lot of people. But um, it, there was a tremendous amount of pressure because if I were to say no, it would have brought so much shame on my parents and it would have equaled my eternal damnation. It was very overwhelming, confusing, and I remember thinking, I'm supposed to be happy about this. Why do I feel like I just want to curl up in the corner and die? And if, you, if you'd wanted to, could you have said no? Could you have left the community? I didn't have the 
perspective to know that I would be okay if I left the outside world, or if I left the FLDS world and went into the outside world. You know, my, there's so much shame and fear and guilt and damnation promised if you cross that line. And not only will you be a Gentile, but the worst of the worst Gentiles. So I was terrified. I didn't even know if there was any goodness in the outside world. And sadly, my father, who grew up in the outside world, he did not offer me the option to say, hey, you know what, I understand you have some reservations, that's okay. Even if you want to go to college, if you want to go out there, you'll be fine. Instead, my father told me, you know, if you do it, you will, your salvation will be made sure. So leaving was not an option in my mind because of the years of grooming that had happened up until that point. So uh, at that point, you're still in Salt Lake, are you? Yes. And uh, so that's quite the transition. I assume you then moved to Colorado City, did you? I did. I moved to Roland Jeff Hildale home after I married him. Okay. And you're the 19th wife. Uh, he's 85 years old. What was that like? Well, it was, it was as horrifying as you can imagine. This man was my prophet. He could have been my great-grandfather. And I was all of a sudden expected to give myself to him physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Spiritually, I looked up to him as a prophet, but it was very awkward and very horrifying, as as horrifying as you can imagine, to have a young girl who, where there's so much indoctrination about her place in society, how she's not supposed to have her body touched, not supposed to like boys or anything, and then instantly being handed over to this old man who made no excuses about trying to consummate children, even at his age with a young teenage girl and with all of the rest of his young wives. Did your, uh, over time, did your, did your beliefs change? Did you start to become disillusioned? After I married the prophet and I saw the very human and carnal side of this man, not just sexually, not just, um, you know, in the day-to-day life, but also to see him and to be there present as he would have conversations about questioning what's supposed to happen next. Didn't God say that the destructions were supposed to happen? Didn't God say, I'm supposed to be the last prophet? Seeing his insecurity was incredibly traumatizing to me because this was the man who we were taught our entire lives had talked with God and daily and had constant revelation about what was going on. And uh, at that time in Hilldale, I don't know if you even had these sorts of conversations about your beliefs, but uh, were there others who were, you could maybe sense were becoming disillusioned, or were most of the people uh, very much, you know, held to their faith? What, I don't know if you could. I don't know if you could tell. Well, there's two things going on. There's one, and I know that many people who are aware of the FLDS situation know about this concept of keeping sweet, and that, in essence, is a mask. Put this mask on where you're smiling and you're thrilled to do whatever is asked of you by your prophet. So this mask is going on, but underneath, I was not the only one that felt that way. There were other wives in Ruin Jeff's home that struggled with his sexual advances and struggled with seeing some of the things that he did to others among the people. And yet, if we were to voice those, there was almost like a a whole undercurrent, even in the prophet's family, if concern or doubts were voiced, you would be told on, and Warren would be, would promptly reprimand you. So there was that culture, not only in the, in the prophet's home, but also among the people where they're policing each other, and they've built that culture exactly like that, where the prophet doesn't have time to go to every single person and police them. He's taught this culture of them policing each other for him. So there comes a time when, when Rulon Jeffs dies, his son Warren Jeffs uh, takes over as prophet, leader of the church, and he wants you to remarry, right? So that, that's the crisis that precipitates you deciding to leave, I believe. Yes. By that point in time, after seven years of marriage to Rulon Jeffs and after everything I had seen, I'd had enough, and I figured if that was heaven, I would take hell. And as terrifying as it was, I had no idea that just... You know, leaving that note on my bed and slipping past security guards and climbing over a fence, you know, a great big fence to get away and escaping was the easy part compared to the road that I had ahead in 
trying to unlearn all of this programming that I had had for 26 years of my life, trying to relearn how to integrate into society, trying to learn how to, to think and, and discover a whole new life. Um, it's as overwhelming as anyone even comprehend did you what was your what was your plan you did you left a note you you were going to slip past the guards and then and then what i had a brother who had contacted me and he said that i could go and live with him and that was my only plan at first i thought i need to leave and i just need to get out of here because i cannot be forced to be married again i just can't bring myself to do that so fortunately for me my brother said he would help me so I had a friend who said he would help drive me up to where my brother was living in Coos Bay, Oregon. And honestly, I didn't really have a plan. I had no idea what to expect, except that I needed to get away. And you're leaving behind, essentially. You'll have no contact in the future with most of your family who's still in the church. I left behind not only the people I love, not only my family, but everything I knew everything that I understood, everything that was familiar to me. And that is a hard part of it, a hard part of that journey of leaving a close group like this. You have to completely rewrite even, you don't have the roots to go back to. You're ostracized. You can't go back, and yet you have to go forward, but it's terrifying. It's, it's, it's quite an experience. And you felt that you, you needed to go through, at least looking in retrospect, needed to go through a program of deprogramming. How would you go about that? It was a, it, well, and it's something that I still work on. A deprogramming from 26 years of very complex, very sophisticated mind control. This is, it doesn't happen by accident. And the way that these groups use the tactics that they use is very similar to what was used on American prisoners of war to break them. It's very sophisticated and it takes years of doing. Part of it is time, part of it is being willing to do the work. And I have. And I'm a huge advocate for people to go and get some counseling. To be honest, after Warren's trial in Texas, I was so devastated by the evidence. Just my soul was pressed, not just because of what Warren had done to that young 12-year-old girl, but even harder for me was the fact that he had gotten my sister wives, women I lived with, who I looked up to and who I loved, to become the sexual perpetrators on each other and some of these young girls. That was so hard for me to comprehend and to deal with. And I am a huge fan of getting some good therapy, some very effective therapy, some good counseling to help unravel the tangled mess of programming that happens. How did you get involved in the prosecutions? I first contacted law enforcement in order to find my mother and my sisters. They were taken and disappeared and put into one of these houses in hiding. And after seeing what had happened to my younger sister, Elisa, being forced to marry her first cousin at age 14, I knew my mother could not protect my sisters. I was in a position in the outside world where I had at least some level of trust in the laws of the land, and that was my first step in being able to find them. It wasn't to bring down Warren's death or to bring this group to any kind of criminal prosecution. It was more importantly to find my mother and protect my sisters. After not being able to find them, filing missing persons reports, I was in contact with law enforcement um, in trying to look for them, and that was what sparked the whole uh, connection there. And my position, not just how I felt about the atrocities that I understood were going on inside of the FLDS, but being the prophet's wife, having seen what I saw with my own eyes, heard what I heard, and seen the, the inner workings of this family, my testimony was critical, and it was a piece that had to be a part of the prosecution in order to validate what had been going on, because, and again, I think this speaks to the level of grooming that happens. If these young girls could come out and say, this was happening to me, my testimony would not have been needed. But it speaks to the level of grooming and fear they have of the outside world. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I want to get to this, uh, the, the title here, The Witness Wore Red. This was significant, right? You showed up one day in a, in a red dress uh, that had some significance. 
Yes. Well, the first time that I wore red was when Warren Depp, the first time I saw him, see, when he was forcing me to be remarried, he pointed his finger at me and he said, I will break you and I will train you to be a good wife. And he gave me one week before I was supposed to be remarried. And that was the last time I saw him until I met him in the courtroom in southern Utah to testify in the preliminary trial after he was apprehended. And going into that courtroom, I wanted to send him a message that I was not broken. And we were banned from wearing red, solid red, growing up. And it was, and it was my way of sending him a message, not only that I was not broken, but he, that I knew that I was not broken. And it went on to be a symbol to me because, you know, I climbed a fence in 2002 to escape to a completely new life. And... It's been a struggle, little wins, little big struggles, little struggles, all of that. But it's something that I, just like every single other person who's ever faced anything hard, just anyone who's alive today, we face struggles and we have to act today because we made a hard choice 10 years ago. It doesn't make our life just smooth sailing now. We have to choose each and every single day. So for me, the color red is a symbol of courage. It's a reminder that I have to act today. The good that I've done in the past, that's wonderful, but it doesn't matter today. I have to choose today. And in fact, your organization claim red. That's purposeful, I'm guessing, red in the title. Absolutely. You know, I grew up in the heart of the United States, and yet I did not understand my own personal rights and what freedom actually was. And I came to the realization it's not enough that the laws of our beautiful land gives us freedom. We have to claim that right to choose. We have to act on our own freedom. We can't just be told that. We have to really make a conscious effort to choose the life that we want. Otherwise, people will choose for us. Uh, the organization I made reference to is Claim Red. It's a nonprofit organization which helps victims of human trafficking. Rebecca Musser's book is The Witness War Red, The 19th Wife Who Brought Polygamous Cult Leaders to Justice. And we've been talking uh, with Rebecca Musser on the program earlier in the program, Jonathan Turley, attorney for the Brown family. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And uh, we hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow when we'll be talking about living sustainably. Of course, uh, many of us talk the talk that we have to make changes in our personal lives to make the world a better place, especially prominent now with the bad air moving back into many areas in Utah. But we're going to be talking with some people who actually walk the talk, including Charles Ashers, who uh, commented earlier uh, today. He and his wife uh, live a sustainable lifestyle. We're talking about sustainability and walking the talk on tomorrow's program. Hope you'll join us. For producers uh, Bennett Purser and uh, uh, Katie Swain, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and at the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, Education Classes, focused on individual instruction beginning January 6th, introducing students to the elements and principles of art as well as several media. Information at cachearts.org org or 435-752-0026.